This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Well, we come to the fourth and the most well-known of Isaiah's servant songs, Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13 and going down through 53 and verse 12. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of this text, said, it is the Bible in miniature, the essence of the gospel. Another commentator said that this is the most important text in the Old Testament. It is the basis of Paul's argument for justification in Romans 5. It is the basis for Peter's argument for godly suffering in 1 Peter chapter 2. In my opinion, Isaiah 53 is to the Old Testament what Romans 8 is to the New Testament. It is just rich in significance for every believer because it gives us an astonishingly clear understanding of the gospel, showing us the need for reconciliation and the means by which we are reconciled. Anyone who is serious about knowing God has to answer two questions. The first is, how can a rebel like me ever be reconciled to the God that I have offended? And the second question is, how, how could a holy God ever look at a rebel like me with favor? Well, the one answer to both of those questions is Jesus. That Jesus paid the penalty of my rebellion so that I can be reconciled to God. And Jesus satisfied the wrath of God against my sin so that God can be reconciled to me. In Jesus Christ, we who are far away have been brought near and made to be at peace with God. That's the heart of this text. We see Jesus as the suffering servant who comes as our substitutionary sacrifice to save us from the guilt of our sin. And in this, Jesus is unique. No one else can provide us with right standing before God, but Jesus in his death and resurrection secures our forgiveness and our reconciliation. So that's the heart of where we're going to go with this particular passage. Let's read from Isaiah Chapter 52, verse 13, and we'll read straight through 53 to the end of that chapter. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who shall believe what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, 
and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, there's great irony in this text. And uh, what I want to do as we approach this is to break it down into three sections. And each of these three sections is really going to have the same pattern. We're going to see that Isaiah moves from the dubious appearance or the doubtful appearance of Jesus to the definitive accomplishment of Jesus. So that in spite of what Jesus Look like in spite of his appearance, in spite of what people thought about him, Jesus actually finished and accomplished the task of salvation. He has triumphed over sin, death, and evil. So the text will show us exactly how he has done that. So the truth that we really want to focus on is this. Jesus has finished the task of reconciling sinners to God and the text will show us how that happened. So the three sections will begin with the first in chapter 52 and verse 13 through 15. And we see that Jesus is regarded as unclean, but he becomes our sacrifice. So verse 14 tells us that we are astonished when we see him. And the word astonished doesn't mean that we're surprised. It actually means that we're horrified or we are shocked. And he's speaking about Jesus's 
physical appearance at the crucifixion. As a result of the beatings and the torture and the crucifixion that Jesus endured, he was so disfigured in face and body that people turned away from him in horror. People averted their eyes in shock. They gathered their children and covered their children's eyes to avoid the trauma. Uh, the, the first date that I took Beverly on, we, we went to a movie, which was a dumb idea. Um, you know, you can't have a conversation when two people are sitting looking at a screen, right? Nevertheless, we, we went to see The Elephant Man, um, which was based on the true story of, of John Merrick, who in Victorian England was so deformed by the disease that he had that he was actually abandoned and, and eventually basically became a slave living in a traveling circus. And he was, he was a, a freak show and people would come and pay their money and they would go behind the curtain and they would get a peek at this person who was so disfigured by disease that he could, he could hardly be looked upon. And, and one scene in the movie, there's a, a group of women who come and, and they approach that tent and they, they pay their money and they go in and, and you know, they're just kind of excited about what's the freak show all about. And they get back and they, they look at John Merrick and they are just so shocked that they literally scream and go running from the tent. Now that's the picture that is being presented here of Jesus. That Jesus, after being tortured, hardly resembled a man and people said, we don't want to look at him. But there's something far more important than just his physical disfigurement. Isaiah uses the word marred, which was the term used to describe those thought to be under God's judgment because they were ritually unclean. And specifically, when people heard of someone being marred, what came to their mind was a leper. Because leprosy was the plague of the day. And leprosy was a term used for a whole gamut of skin diseases. But at its worst, leprosy was so physically debilitating that it left its victims broken and disabled and hideously disfigured. It left them socially isolated so that they were shunned and outcast by society. But more importantly, it, it made people spiritually unclean so that a leper was not allowed to enter into the temple to worship God. He lived under a cloud of alienation. And here's the, here's the thing. Even if a leper was healed physically, he was still unclean until he had been ritually cleansed by a priest. Now, we look at verse 15 and we see that in spite of this appearance, he sprinkles the nations. The word sprinkle is the very word that would have brought to mind this idea of ritual cleansing because it's the word that was used for the ritual cleansing of a leper. So if a leper was healed physically, he had to go to the priest and the ritual is described in Leviticus 14. He would take two birds 
And the priest would take one of those birds and he would kill the bird and he would drain the blood of that bird into a basin that was filled with pure water and he would mix the blood and the water. And then he would take a stick made of cedar wood and he'd have a bundle of hyssop, which is a plant that had spongy leaves. And he would take that bundle of hyssop and he would bind that bundle of hyssop to that stick with a scarlet piece of thread. And then he would go and he would dip that hyssop into the blood and water mixture and he would come to the leper and he would sprinkle that over the body of the leper. And when he had received that sprinkling of the blood and the water of that bird, then he was declared to be ritually cleansed. The stain that he had borne and the alienation that was a result of his leprosy was gone. So then they would take that second bird and they would turn it loose. And it was a symbolic demonstration of his stain and the curse that came with it flying away. So the leper would see that bird flying away and know that the curse and the stain that made him ritually unclean and unable to come into the presence of God was gone. This is the very type of cleansing that Jesus has done for the nations and for us. That through his blood, Jesus Christ has cleansed us and declared us to be acceptable to enter into God's presence. So like that bird that is set free, we are free from the curse and the stain of our sin. We're free from the alienation. We're free from the bondage that kept us separated from God and his people. And we are free to enter the presence of God in right standing. Oh, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Now see, the irony here is that this marring and disfiguring of Jesus that made him unclean is actually the means by which we are cleansed from our sin. What causes us to turn away from him physically is actually the means by which God spiritually draws us near and makes us his own. Here is Jesus who is regarded as unclean. He is the sacrifice through whom our sin is cleansed. The second section will be chapter 53. And verses one through six, Jesus is regarded as accursed, but he becomes our substitute. Now, verse two of chapter 53 presents Jesus as undesirable. He's not a towering cedar. He's more of a tender young plant. He's not regal in appearance. He's not handsome like King Saul or King David. He's not a rich and famous celebrity. He's not regarded as a great leader. But verse three takes this again much further. He's described as being despised. And in fact, Isaiah uses the word despised twice. For Hebrews, the repetition was generally the way of expressing a superlative. So Jesus is not just despised, he's really despised. 
And the word really carries the idea of, of someone being vile and despicable. And it points specifically to someone being regarded as reprobate. Someone who is regarded as accursed. We saw that with the Pharisees. The Pharisees called him the prince of demons. They referred to his ministry as the work of the devil. They accused him of being a blasphemer. Well, the crowds, as Jesus was on trial, screamed for his death, choosing the known thief and murderer Barabbas for release while demanding that Jesus be crucified. And when Jesus was crucified, they remembered Deuteronomy 21, 23, Cursed is anyone who is nailed to a tree. And they looked at Jesus being crucified and they said, there is all the evidence that we need. It confirmed in their minds that Jesus was accursed and abandoned by God. In 174, 175 BC, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes became the king of the Seleucid kingdom under which the land of Judah was subservient. And Antiochus Epiphanes had one goal in mind for his kingdom. He wanted his kingdom to be thoroughgoing Hellenistic in all of their culture. He wanted everyone in his kingdom to live the Greek way of life. So he built a gymnasium in Jerusalem because the Greeks liked competition. He wanted the Jews to be competitive and enjoy the games um, that the Greeks enjoyed. He began to insist that that the Jewish children be taught a Hellenistic worldview. And most importantly to the Jews, Antiochus Epiphanes demanded that the Jews begin to worship the way that Greeks worshiped. And so Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple of Yahweh and he put up an altar to Zeus and he actually sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. He desecrated the temple to the point that Antiochus Epiphanes became the villain of all villains to a Jewish person. If, if you were to ask a typical Jewish person who is the worst, most vile, most despicable human being that you could ever think of, they would say Antiochus Epiphanes. Well, here's an interesting thing. When Daniel prophesied the coming of Antiochus Epiphanes, in Daniel eleven twenty one, he described him as that contemptible man. And the word contemptible in the ESV is actually the same word that is translated despised in Isaiah chapter 53. Think of the most vile, despicable, evil person that you can think of that has ever lived. Maybe it's Hitler, maybe it's Stalin. And whatever it is that you would use to describe that person, that's the equivalent of the way the people in Jesus' day are describing him. He is comparable to the most vile, contemptible, evil person they have ever known. Well, what was the truth of the matter? What actually happened with Jesus? Well, verse six tells us, that when Jesus hangs on the cross, God laid our sin on him. And the word laid means that something, something comes in lights or something lands on. So God took our sin and he caused our sin to land on Jesus. 
God took all of our sin and caused it to land on our saviors. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 1, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So here's the irony. The one who is regarded as accursed is actually one who is perfectly innocent, perfectly righteous, perfectly pure, and yet he actually becomes accursed for us because Jesus serves as our substitute. And Jesus took the wrath that we deserve. He took the cursing that we deserved. He bore the punishment due to us because of our rebellion and he delivers us. Notice specifically what Jesus did. As our substitute, we're told that he carried our sorrows and our griefs. Those are the consequences of our guilt. As our substitute, Jesus carried our guilt. Just like the scapegoat in the Old Testament, when the priest would take that goat on the day of atonement, he would confess the sins of the people on the head of that goat, and then he would drive it out into the wilderness. And it was a, a demonstration to the people of God that God had heard the prayers of the priest, he had forgiven their sins, and now their sins are being carried far away where they will never bother them again. As the psalmist said in Psalm 103 verse 12, as far as from east is to west. So he has removed our sins from us. What, what else does he tell us? He did as our substitute. He carried our guilt. He canceled our debt. He canceled our debt. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. And when someone was crucified, it was not unusual. In fact, in a way it was typical, the authorities would take a piece of wood or they would take a piece of parchment and they would write on that paper or that wood the crime of the person who was being crucified. So if you were walking by and you saw people on a cross, there would be a sign. This guy's being crucified for treason. This guy's being crucified for murder. And if you saw someone on a cross, typically you would know the crime for which he was being punished. Well, God tells us through Paul that we have an IOU. We have an IOU that is due, that we owe God perfect obedience and perfect love. And instead of giving God perfect obedience and perfect love, we have given him disobedience and idolatry. We have not lived up to our obligation. And so we must pay up. So here's what Paul says. Paul says that God took that IOU. He took the debt that we owe him and he nailed it to the cross of Jesus Christ declaring this is the reason he's dying. He's dying to pay my debt. He's dying to pay your debt. And in fact, Jesus has paid our debt, so it is satisfied and canceled forever. 
Jesus also, we're reminded in Isaiah 53, has cured our disease as our substitute because like an inoperable, incurable cancer, sin has spread through us. It has consumed us and it has given us a death sentence. But Jesus, through his suffering, has brought the medicine that we need and he has touched us and cured us and given us life. This is one who appeared to be accursed and he was in fact accursed for us. He became our substitute and as our substitute, he carried our guilt away. He canceled our debt forever and he cured our disease and made us whole. I think of the promise and the blessing of Aaron in Numbers chapter six in verses 24 and 25 and 26, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and, and give you peace. And I think there's not a person in here who would not want that blessing. All of us want to live under that favor. Well, Sinclair Ferguson said, for us to enjoy that blessing, someone had to bear the opposite curse. The Lord curse you and forsake you. The Lord frown upon you and be wrathful to you. The Lord darken his countenance upon you and give you judgment. When Jesus died, Jesus heard that curse and he bore that curse. And as our substitute, he took all that we deserve for our rebellion. So today we live under the blessing of God's favor. No more atonement is needed. No more payment is to be made. No more punishment is to be given for all of it has been done by our substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Jesus is our sacrifice who has cleansed our sin. He is our substitute who's carried our guilt, canceled our debt, and cured our disease. The third section in chapter 53 and verses 7 through 12, we see that Jesus was regarded as weak, and yet he is the sovereign one. When I was a kid, for some reason, I loved boxing, and I lived in the glory days of boxing. Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali, Ken Norton, Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Thomas Hearns, man, it was great. I loved boxing, and, and I, I used to watch these boxers climb into the ring. And I guess it's because they don't wear uniforms. You know, more than any other athlete, it seems boxers is just really impressive. When that boxer climbs into the ring, you're like, man, that guy is so fit. He looks ready to fight. He looks strong. He looks agile. I was thinking, I guess if, if I was a boxer and I climbed into the ring, I can hear the commentators Here's David climbing to the ring. He looks kind of old. 
He looks a little bit slow, looks a little bit punchy. This guy's not very impressive. Well, that's what they thought when they looked at Jesus. Jesus appeared unimpressive. He was hounded by the Jews. He was humiliated by the Romans. In a world that was obsessed with power, someone who was meek and lowly, someone who taught the first shall be last and the last shall be first, someone who came not to be served but to serve was regarded as weak. And here is Jesus standing silently before Pilate and the Romans say, here is weakness. Here is Jesus being tortured and executed by pagan soldiers and the world says, here is weakness. And here is Jesus being buried as a criminal in a borrowed tomb and the devil says, weakness. As Jesus went into battle, he looked far more like a little lamb than a mighty lion. And yet, what was regarded as weakness by man was in fact the greatest manifestation of the power of God. For while the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. And in his apparent weakness, Jesus was the sovereign one who conquered our enemy. Verse 10 affirms this. He says that, he says it was the will of, of the Lord to crush him. That doesn't mean that God is some type of sadist. It actually means it pleased the Lord to crush him. But here's the deal. It pleased the father to crush Jesus because God knows the end of the story. God knows in light of the third day, God knows in light of the resurrection, Jesus will definitively win the battle. In fact, look at, look at the phrases that he uses through this passage. Jesus will see his offspring. Jesus will prolong his days. Jesus will be satisfied. Jesus will be rewarded. Jesus will receive a portion. All of these phrases point to one truth, that after the father crushes Jesus, after Jesus dies for our sins, he is alive to see and enjoy the success of his work. Through the resurrection, Jesus wins. He is the conqueror. And how ironic that the Lamb of Calvary is the Lion of Judah who has finished the work of salvation upon the cross and has proven who he is and what he has done through his resurrection. And the Father was willing to give him up knowing that he would be raised victoriously over death, hell, and the grave. And listen, because Jesus is the sovereign one who has conquered our enemy, we don't have to live in the fear of death. We don't have to live in the fear of tribulation. We don't have to live in the fear of penalty and punishment because we stand in the triumphant victory of the conqueror, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this text more than anything else sets before us the heart of Jesus. This text shows us that the heart of Jesus is to address the greatest need that we have. And that is 
that we're separated from God and we need reconciliation. It was all, all of our all of the brokenness of our lives and all the brokenness of our society is really just a reflection of the fact that we need to be reconciled to God. And Jesus, the suffering servant, has finished that work of reconciliation on the cross. There on the cross, the one who is pure became filthy for us. The one who is righteous became sin for us. The one who is innocent became guilty for us. The one who is the source of life died for us. The one who is dead rose again and lives evermore for us. Several years ago, there was a really brilliant Christian marketer who came up with some bracelet and put four letters on it in a question mark and made a gazillion dollars. WWJD, you remember that? What would Jesus do? I thought it was a pretty good idea. I think the idea was to look at that, those letters and that question, what would Jesus do? And if you're facing a situation, ask yourself, what would Jesus do? That's a good thing, I think. Can I tell you a more important question? And I don't have this copyrighted, so if you want to make some money, go ahead. I think even more important than WWJD is WDJD. What did Jesus do? Because it's what Jesus has done that gives us life. You know, so much of a so much of a life of faith is really just remembering. It's remembering the promises of God. It's remembering the character of God. And it's remembering the work of God in Jesus Christ. So much of living by faith is remembering what Jesus did. Remembering what God did through his son. Romans 8.32 reminds us, that God did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up. And will he not with him freely give us all things? You see what Paul is saying? He's saying, here's the promise that I want you to think about. That God will freely give you all things. What is our motivation for believing that? What, what undergirds that gives us faith to say God will freely give us all things? It's because of what he's already given us. He was willing to give his own son and to give him up for us. When we're wondering about the blessing of God, oh, if we can remember what did Jesus do, that's the grounding of our faith. If you're doubting today, if God loves you, would you just remember what Jesus did? If you're questioning the favor of God, would you remember what Jesus did? If you're unsure about forgiveness, would you remember what Jesus did? If you're unsettled about death, would you remember what Jesus did? Because Jesus finished the task. And what Jesus did is he came as a suffering servant and became our substitutionary sacrifice who delivers us from sin and to God. That's what he has done. That's the finished work that he's accomplished. And that finished work should be our focus and our hope every day. Today, we stand in the shadow of the cross knowing that the work of salvation was finished by the lamb who was slain. 
Today, we stand in the light of the empty tomb, confident that God has accepted his offering on our behalf, confident that the lion of Judah has conquered the enemy. And if we want to grasp the fullness of who Jesus is, if we want to understand the gospel, if we want to find genuine rest for our souls, if we want to live a life of faith, if we want to truly live for God's glory, then today and every day, let us embrace the finished work of Jesus Christ upon that cross. Let us rejoice in the favor that Jesus has secured for us. Let us accept the forgiveness that Jesus has granted us. Let us live in the power of the resurrection that Jesus has provided for us. For he is the triumphant Savior who has finished the work. You don't seem too excited, but I want to sing. So we're going to sing and I'm going to pray. And as we sing, this is my prayer that God would use this song to cement in your hearts and minds, this truth. Jesus is the means of reconciliation with God and he has finished the work. And as we worship God, as we worship Jesus, as we sing the words of this song, would you ask the Lord to cement that in your heart and mind today and every day to remember who Jesus is and what he has done. As we sing, if you have a decision that we can pray with you about, if you're here today and you know that you're separated from God, listen, we would love to share with you how you can be reconciled with God through faith in Jesus. And we would invite you to come as we sing. Would you stand with me? Let's pray and we'll worship the Lord. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.